What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to Miss Education, and this is Jen Maestas. I am sitting here today with a group of very esteemed colleagues. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Two of them you already know. They're from I Teach Therefore. But in case this is your first time tuning in, we're all going to do a really quick whip around of who we are. Hey, I'm Susanna, which with I Teach Therefore, um, just a reminder, our podcast is all about um, elevating teacher voice by letting them share the stories of their real life work, the roles that they do that are inherently tied to their practice. And my partner is Kristen. Hey, everyone. I'm Kristen. We are so excited today to speak with Eric and Marvin. Uh, I know it's going to be an enlightening uh, talk. And yeah, we're excited about our own podcast as well as our collaboration with Miss Education. Eric and Marvin, I know y'all um, from getting to work in the same district as you, but could y'all tell us one about y'all's current roles on campus? Um, and then if you get an opportunity, will you tell us just kind of the story of how you came into education? Um, hi, I'm Marvin Walker. Um, glad to be here. Um, currently, I am a math teacher at Alamo Heights High School and a basketball coach. Um, I've coached at the high school level, the collegiate level. So I've kind of been, you know, on multiple uh, facets of education. Right now, just happy to be in Alamo Heights, just happy to be a part of hopefully some some positive change. And uh, I think we're here today to kind of discuss some of those, some of our thoughts and ideas on the climate of our district right now. Hi, I'm Eric Cruz. I am currently an uh, English teacher, creative writing teacher, and literary magazine teacher at Alamo, Alamo Heights High School. This is my 17th year in teaching. I've also just been honored to be a uh, Alamo Heights Teacher of the Year 2017-2018. Um, also super lucky to be honored as such as, as District Teacher of the Year in um, Austin ISD in 2007-2008. Um, and like Marvin, I'm really thankful to work in the community that I do work in. I'm looking forward to discussing um, ways that we can improve and make it a more equitable space uh, for everyone, uh, students and adults. Yeah. yeah, one of y'all's roles right now, I mean, at least over the summer, is the Hearts Wide Open book club. So um, I know that not all of the people that are running that book club are here, but could y'all um, speak to how the book club came about um, and, you know, what the intention was? Sure. So 
there was a lot going on in the world after George Floyd's um, situation. So I was posting, you know, a lot of retweets on Twitter and Eric was, was either liking a lot of them or making little comments, you know, in support of whatever I was posting. And then one day he posted something about wanting to do something. And he mentioned a book club. He mentioned some other options or whatever. And I was in that same space of thinking there's something, I don't want to just be this guy who's retweeting and reposting and, you know, kind of stewing over here. I want to do something. So I called Eric, had him, you know, send me his number and I called him. Of course, we've seen each other at school, but we hadn't really had any, any meaningful conversations. So I called him and was like, Hey man, I, I saw your, your post about wanting to do something. Let's do a book club. And he was, you know, he was on board. He was like, great, let's do it. Um, so we talked probably that day for about 30 minutes, just kind of where our minds were with everything that's going on, kind of some thoughts and ideas on how we could get a book club going. I posted something on Twitter, you know, just like, hey, go start a book club. A few people had already responded to Eric's Twitter where he mentioned a book club and said that they had started reading the book Stamped. So it seemed like a good place to start since it sounded like a few people had already started that book. The book has two um, editions, one that was geared towards the classroom. So we, you know, so we decided that would be the book that we would start with. So uh, me and Eric, you know, kind of, you know, talked about it. We reached out to Ronnie, our librarian, who sent an email to the entire high school and then it just so happened that Valerie Alvarez had posted something on her Facebook similar about let's do a book club. So once she saw our invitation, she reached out and said, hey, I just sent something similar, had a few teachers reach out. Can we kind of collaborate? He was like, sure. So that's kind of how us four came together. And then, you know, before we knew it, like right now, we're standing at about 110 members uh, with probably 98 percent 99 percent of those members being from the Alamo Heights district um so it was it was amazing to see that that many people were willing and ready to to become more educated on what's going on in the world and taking that education into the classroom so that's kind of from my vantage point that's kind of how the book club came to be you know, second everything that Marvin said it was such a great opportunity to get to know someone that um, I'd seen around campus during his first year at our school. And it was, you know, I feel like I have a great like friend now on top of this, but, um, you know, I think there's definitely the moment of, of George Floyd's uh, murder, like his public lynching. That was the genesis of this. But for me as well, like, you know, that eight minutes and 47 seconds took me back a summer previous to where I'm watching Brown children being ripped away from their families and thrown in cages and um, realizing in that moment that I was no longer concerned with other people's comfort. Um, if the people's comfort I was considering was within a system which was oppressive and racist and dehumanizing. And uh, it, 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 to watch another black man murdered in our streets to watch another black person like summarily executed for no other reason than being black. Um, although I myself am not black do not identify as black. It was, uh, I just felt it was time for me to step up for both them and also for 
the opportunity that I didn't take a summer earlier when I was silent out of concern for other people's comfort. And I'm just kind of done with that. There are so many things that I want to, that I want to pull up out of what you two just said. Um, first I'll start with Marvin. Like you stopped talking through about how you, know, you wanted to do something. And Eric, I think you echoed that sentiment. It's like, it's not enough to just retweet or to, you know, do all the things that everybody else was doing on social media right after George Floyd's death. Um, and things that I, I myself am guilty of. I, feel, I always feel like, am I doing enough? What else could I be doing? Where do I lean in? Where do I push in? How do I become an ally? Um, but the doing something is probably the first point of reckoning, right? It's like, at the very least, I can be learning um, about the oppressive systems that are in place and that in some ways I've helped perpetuate by not acknowledging them. Um, and so for me, that moment in time was just heavy. Like I was heartbroken. I, you know, I don't watch the news very frequently because it's, I feel like we, we deal with already a lot of trauma in the stories of, of our teachers and of our students. And then in our own lives that I'm like, eh, I don't need to add more to my plate. So I get my news secondhand most of the time, um, by the people who live around me and with me. Um, and I don't know why that day I decided to click on the link and watch the full seven minute episode. And I just was disgusted. I don't, I, and I don't even think that's a strong enough word. I just can't comprehend how we are okay with, um, or numb to it, I guess, with the things that have been happening for so long, because clearly his death was not the first uh, and, you know, it may be the first time where I have, I have, like, really stopped and felt that grief. Um, but it's not the first. There's the, the same My Name campaign is just eye-opening when you think through how long and how many names are on that list. That It's shocking. So doing something is really kind of inspiring, you guys. So thank you for thinking of that. Um, and then at the other point when you were talking was about not having like working on the same campus, but never having had any meaningful contact prior to this, this um, time period. And I think like, man, it's so true. Like we just, we, we walk around with each other and in the sense of like school family, we're, we're all part of the, the team family in the, in the team sense, like we're on the same team with the same mission, the same goal. Um, but we don't actually, in some cases, know each other. And so that was inspiring to me, too. And it's it's kind of why I love the podcast. And it's why we created San Antonio Leaders and Teachers was because I did feel like even though we're always together and we probably spend as much time with our teacher friends as we do with our own family, we still have missed opportunities to have those meaningful connections. So I hope that your book club is inspiring some of that. I'm thinking of something that I've like engaged in conversation with Eric before, at least as, um, but Kristen as well, just this idea that like teaching is political, which is really an averse concept to a lot of people. Um, and I understand that, uh, uh, 
it shouldn't be like an indoctrinated thing, but just by nature of public education being public education, you know, it's, it's part of our democracy and therefore is political. Um, and something that I think of is like separate from that, but also tied to it is there are sometimes at school, um, as teachers where it's hard to find people like you because we're scared of like saying the wrong thing or pe- not wanting you to think like, well, that I don't think this way or I do think this way. So sometimes it's hard, like just knowing a campus to have a really good bond with your fellow colleagues because you don't even really know what to talk about. You know, you don't know where people fall. Um, and yeah, it's, that's all, it's so intrinsically interwoven that it's hard to pull those threads sometimes. Um, I'm curious, like, yeah, I'm, Jen has asked y'all, do you see those relationships forming from the book club? And um, I'm also wondering, because I know y'all have started the second iteration, you've moved on to the next book, like, how has that come up with the new book? Are you seeing people... Um, you know, more comfortable asking questions and, and engaging in sometimes what people would consider challenging dialogue now that they've been through a full book? Yeah, for sure. I, I have that same question because I'm like, the discomfort that you talked about, Eric, is really real. Um, and it, and these are not these are not conversations that are like light or easy to, to pick up. So what are you seeing in that? I'm seeing uh, for a lot of people, um, like maybe their first time to actually want to engage in these conversations, which, which is such, which is like the crucial first step, right? Um, because you can't really begin to move forward until you start to acknowledge what the issue and what the problems actually are. I think part of the reason why it's so difficult to have these conversations is partly because of like the personal um, or the political, however you want to, to couch that phrase, um, nature of it all. But I also think it has a lot to do with, um, I think it's a product of how our school system is set up as well that keeps teachers from being able to have these sorts of conversations where we're compartmentalized into our departments or by our grades or by our strands. We work on more or less like a factory model of, you know, you're in this, we're kind of like conveyor belts, right? Like, you know, I don't really ever leave my room unless I'm compelled to, where it's the students moving in and out. So my ability to interact with people, very rare, and it's mostly within my own department, and oftentimes within its own echo chamber. So um, one of the refreshing things about this book club is that this is, I think we're also creating like a space of dignity where people can come together of their own volition and be vulnerable. That's where the dignity comes in, the vulnerability and the potential for risk in not knowing something or saying something incorrectly or um, having an assumption challenged. And I think that it more than anything needs to be done more within our school day, within our school culture, you know, because we're, we're kind of weak and powerless without that. I agree with what Eric said. I think another thing is, you know, when the, the first round of the book club started, um, 
there's, you know, there are a few people just by nature or by experience that are comfortable being in an uncomfortable situation and saying things that may not, you know, be the norm. So fortunately for us in the book club, I'm probably one of those people. Uh, I think Eric would probably say he's one of those people. And then we had a few other people in the book club as well. Some young people who was, which, which was kind of a surprise and people who were, you know, probably, you know, second, first or second year in teaching, but just by nature, that's who they are. So having those people in the meetings, people who were willing to, to challenge the norm gave other people maybe some confidence in being, doing the same or saying things that maybe, you know, they might not have said before. And one of the things we stressed in this book club is we're all here to be educated. The reason we all signed up for this book club is to be educated. And one of the things we stress is just because I'm black does not mean I'm the, the authority on all things black. I'm here to be educated as well. I'm reading this book just like you're reading this book, and I'm going to learn from this book just like you're going to learn. We may not learn the same things. Um, so I think, you know, just hearing, you know, but on the other side of it, being black kind of gave me some type of, um, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, authority or, you know, the, you know, people kind of look to me. And there's probably three or four other um, black people in the, in the book club. They kind of, you know, when we, we tell them certain things like, for instance, how we feel about the Confederate flag, what that means to a black person, regardless of what other people say, this is how we feel when we see the Confederate flag. And I remember me and uh, one of the other teachers were, were in the same breakout room and we discussed that. And a couple of people were like, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing how you feel because we've never had heard that perspective from somebody who's black. Um, but I think just the conversations and sometimes the tense moments of the conversation when there's probably people looking around like, oh, did, did he just say that? Or did she just like, you know, or, wow. Like, and we just moved past it and the conversation kept just flowing. And then it became a thing like comfortable. Like, oh, he said that. And there may have been a time where I would have thought that's unacceptable or she said that. But now I think people know when they come there that part of learning is, is being uncomfortable, just like our kids in the classroom. Part of the learning is being uncomfortable. Um, so I think going into this second book, which is even more, um, I think, a little, little harder, the, the conversations with white fragility based, you know, compared to STEM. So the conversations are going to get even more uh, in-depth and, and really challenge some people's, uh, you know, perception of themselves or perception of how they view the world and i think the conversations are going to get even even um deeper and more meaningful yeah for sure i i this is just reminding me of a, a conversation i was having earlier in a different meeting um about the concept of like white dominant culture and and what that looks and sounds like which is new language to me um, I, I am a person of color. I grew up in a very Latin, Latina uh, family. And yet I feel a little disconnected even from that culture because 
our family went through major assimilation um, because they weren't allowed to speak Spanish when my parents were in school. And my grandfathers, in order to progress in their own career, had to lay down a lot of cultural things and pick up um, a dominant culture to succeed and learn how to navigate those systems. And so I feel like I've never really even, I don't know, I don't know if it's that I've never thought of it, but I've never uh, recognized or knew how to put into words what a dominant culture looked like. And I, I saw something today that had like characteristics of this dominant culture. And there were a few of them um, that really stood out to me as like, oh man, that was, that, that was eye-opening, that right there. And one of them is, is um, defensiveness. And I even wrote it down like defensiveness equals, cause I was like, I need to write this down, naming the intention instead of acknowledging the impact. And that to me was like, oh my gosh, how many times, number one, have I done that personally? And then number two, have had other people who I've said, you know what, that was kind of offensive to me. And they're like, I didn't mean to offend you. I wasn't saying that was not my intention. My intention was not to crowd your space or make you feel less than. But when you do that, then you start, then the person on the receiving end of that starts to feel like, okay, I'm going crazy. Like I'm, I'm, am I too sensitive? Am I not like, it's just so many layers of, of like what uh, Susanna was saying. It's so intertwined, all of these things. And the other, the other um, thing that I, that stood out to me a lot was this idea of individualism and being the dominant culture, right? Like that my experience is the experience. And so if you tell me your experience is different, I just don't really buy into that. Um, and what you were saying about the Confederate flag and like what that means to a black person and what that means to you and how, if it's not the group thinking, it's like, it almost doesn't happen, right? Like it's just like those two things alone were really impactful for me today. Um, and then, the, and the third one, and then I'll be quiet, is that there's a, a general, in the dominant culture, in a white dominant culture, there's this right to feeling comfortable and avoiding the conflict. Um, and Eric, that kind of is what you were saying is like, everybody has a right to just live in their own space and nobody has a right to disrupt that comfort. Um, and to me, I, again, like I, I think about the way that I was raised and I don't mean to like place any blame, but I think politeness was a little bit like, I don't know, Eric, what, what were you going to say about that? I see you nodding your head. Help me out. Cause I don't have, I still haven't like learned how to say what I want to say. I'm not even sure I know how to say it, but I think like um, building off something you said earlier and then I'll circle back to the idea of like respect and politeness and what that means. You know, um, I think another, another thing that I've, that I've discerned about like dominance, be it like if we want to do it through the auspice of race or if we want to do it through like gender is that like, it's, it, it almost seems natural Whereas everything, every interaction we have is a construct and a set of codes that, that have been like human created. So they're not natural. They can be changed. But when you're dominant culture, they've been that way for so long that they almost seem encoded within the DNA instead of actually something that's been um, manufactured or fabricated. So um, that's been really interesting to see. And you see that in a lot of places that like lean on ideas of like tradition or lean on ideas of um like this is how we do things this is our way it's because i believe 
that it's so subconscious that, that people who speak in that way believe it is the natural world. In the way that like a tree is natural, but it's not. It's, it's something that's human made. Um, and so I think that piggybacks too on the idea of politeness, at least like, like for me, um, even in the job I currently hold and that I have held for 17 years, I always feel that I have to be at a register higher than some of my colleagues who are not of color. Um, that I have to be more composed than colleagues of mine who are not of color. That I need to be, um, my qualifications need to be better than, like at all times, like there's like no question. Um, and that's, let's, let, let's let me to think of a lot of things. Like I think that leads to a lot of, insecurity in oneself i think it leads to moments perhaps of even self-loathing yeah and i think there's also like inferior superior those right master slave dynamic like you know and, and i think you know also trying to figure out like i'm also a part of it because i'm chasing those things that validation, validation. Yeah. yeah probably just kind of that last part of what eric talked about like feeling like you have to, you know, almost be a level above because of your skin color. Um, I kind of come at things a little bit different. Like, I think I come in almost and ready. And I think in some ways that has prepared me for the times that I've had a parent challenge me, an administrator challenge me, uh, as a coach, maybe, a, you know, a parent of one of my players challenged me. And I always, and I guess it's good and it's bad because I'm stay, I stay prepared and we all should from a professional standpoint, but I think I stay prepared from a defensive standpoint. Like when you come at me, I'm going to be ready. Like I'm almost expecting people to come at me. So I'm always, I always got my, my, my ducks in a row when I communicate with parents who I think might be a little bit, you know, abrasive, it's always an email. And I always have documentation of the communication I've had with their, their kids because, and then when they say they want to meet with me and they say they want to meet with me and an administrator, I walk into that meeting and like, let's go. And I got my folder under my arm, like, let's go, let's do this. Cause I'm ready. Cause I know I've done nothing wrong. And usually they back down because they either see that maybe I got this look on my face or they're like, he's, it's almost like he's got that folder on his arm and he got some stuff in there that's going to, whatever I say is going to, he's, he's going to hit me with something, you know? So I've never, I've never been caught in a situation where a parent or some, or an administrator for that matter was able to push me back or, or push back against something I was doing. And I like to say that I'm just a professional and that's just how I go about my business. But some of that is about being ready to be attacked because, you know, the look that I get as a black man who goes by the name coach, who teaches math. So when kids go home and tell their parents, coach Walker, coach Walker, coach Walker, they're probably already thinking, what, you got a coach teaching you math? And then I've seen the look on parents' face when they come to meet me and they turn the corner and see me. It's like, it's literally like a, and this is for not even just white parents, this is black parents, 
Hispanic parents, any color you think of, they're just shocked when they turn the corner and see me. I even had one parent this year who was a, a black student and I met with their parents because issues with the kid and the mom came in and she was, she was on a level 10. Like when I walked into the office, the secretaries were kind of warning me, you know, jokingly. And I was like, well, she don't know who I am either. Like I'm about to go in here. Like I ain't scary, whatever. And when I turned the corner and she looked up and saw me, it was like, like, girl, you didn't tell me he was black. Like you could just, and she even said it at some point during the conversation. She even said that, you know, that she didn't know I was black and that she came in here ready to pull the race card on the school. And then she realized I was black and the race card wasn't going to work. And she tried to remain on a level 10, but she quickly dropped to like a level three because it was like, I can't use that. Um, but I was prepared for that conversation too. Like I had all my stuff ready for that too, because it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes, you know, people of color beat each other down, unfortunately. Yeah. And don't you think part of that is probably her saying like, I'm coming prepared. Like I, I am prepared for this injustice that I am already like, it's ahead of me. I'm already ready for it. Because she's probably experienced it from the other side. He probably feels like, her kids, she's had a lot of kids come through the district, so she probably has faced some situation where one of her kids was treated a certain way or wasn't given an opportunity because they were Black. So she probably thought this was just another one of those situations. And once she was able to let her guard down and let me talk, she realized that her daughter, in this case, was was in the wrong and kind of sensationalized the story in her favor. And the, the parent was like, girl, if he did, did all that, you know, why am I here? But she's probably had some experiences that had us both put our guards up. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's definitely individual trauma, but there's community trauma too, right? Where you, and like, that's the thing is we, we have to, we have to heal individually, but there's a community sense too that has, there's community work that has to happen um, in order for people to, to come to situations not armed up, you know? Yeah, and particularly when, you know, there are topics that people are really invested in, like their kids' academics, like the um, nature of our society and the systems that are in place that keep it in its, you know, nice little order that a lot of people feel very safe and comfortable with, but that clearly disadvantages um, certain populations. So I'd love to hear in the book club, how do you go about setting norms and creating a space that does disarm people so that they don't come into these situations that are heightened emotionally and, um, you know, have that really block out their open-mindedness to what they can learn. For the people who show up, I, I think so far to this voluntary opportunity, they display like an uncommon um, openness and an uncommon vulnerability. So, um, I think your question is excellent. And I think I, I'm interested to see like, how do we, how do we engage in populations that aren't even willing to come to the table to have that conversation voluntarily, you know, but um, within the context of the book group, what I've seen happen in, in breakout rooms I've been in and anecdotally from uh, other people, it's, it's just, you got to be able to, you got to be able to name whatever, the uncomfortable moment is in the moment. So for example, uh, when someone says to me in a, in a book club, like, 
you know, I've never, I've never realized that X, Y, and Z occurs. One of my questions for them is, um, have you ever considered why that's never even been like a consideration for you? You know, and, and I always bring it back to, I always bring it back to gender. So I don't put people on the defensive. Like, um, there's so many things I don't think about. I'll just use the parking lot example. Um, I will park the furthest out that I can because I don't have a fancy car, but I don't want anyone to like to hit my car. So I, I park out the farthest that I can. Uh, you know, it wasn't until I had real honest conversations with my wife who at the time was my girlfriend like in early twenties that, that I even thought about like the women don't park out when she said like, that's, that's just a like privilege you get to live in. I had to be willing to listen to that and be like, you're right. Like it's like, I am part of a sexist system and benefit from it. I'm something that I'm finding. And, you know, even within myself, it's interesting that you like always tie it back to gender. Cause that's what people are comfortable with. And like, first of all, yeah, what, that is problematic in itself. Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, we've talked about this stat um, before, Kristen and Jen and I, but I mean, it's just obvious, like the majority of the teaching profession is white women. And, you know, I think women are more and more comfortable talking about um you know, like where they stand in a patriarchal system and their people are more and more comfortable talking about how we are discriminated against by gender, but then you get into a room full of teachers who are women and all of a sudden they're uncomfortable talking about gender or sorry, race. Uh, and something that is a little bit of irony in that is looking at the Me Too movement, that that was something that was started by a Black woman, you know? Um, and it's, it's just interesting because we always, or something that I hear educators saying, and I truly believe in, is that kids can handle and talk about things so much more than we give them credit for. Like, they can engage in conversations that adults just find far too challenging. So why do we not, you know, set up those environments for ourselves as educators, as adults? And I guess what I want to know is like, talk to us about how this is intrinsically tied to the work that you do in the classroom. And, and how do you hope that the book club, you know, informs people's practices in their own classrooms? Well, I think on about kids can handle more than we give them credit for when we talk, when we talk about these tough subjects. Um, but I think it takes someone at the front of the room to be able to, to moderate that conversation or lead that conversation. And I think that's why we have so many people in the book club, because a lot of people who want to lead that conversation but they don't want to mess up. They don't want to say the wrong thing, offend somebody. And, you know, one of the things we've said to them is that, you know, if you're, you know, anytime you make a mistake, and this is kind of, you know, how I've always thought about it with working with kids or even with, with someone else, you know, another adult, if I make a mistake 
But in my heart, I thought I was doing the right thing and maybe tunnel vision and maybe didn't think about it from this perspective, whatever. And somebody comes to me and goes, coach uh, Marvin, did you ever think about, like, I can go to sleep at night going, I, that was the right decision. And then somebody said, did you ever think about it from this point of view? And I go, oh, no, I, did, I didn't really, really think about that. But it doesn't prevent me from sleeping at night because the decision I made came from my heart. There was no ill intent. And so the things we, I, you know, we say to p- teachers are when you're trying to maybe deal with a situation at school, whether it be in your classroom, in the hallway, in society, you know, where you come across a, a situation where there was some, some racist intent or, or whatever it is, and you try to deal with it from a good place and maybe you don't necessarily deal with it the right way, but in your heart, you were trying to do the right thing. Then I think even, you know, that student who maybe you was trying to help and maybe you didn't necessarily say it the right way, they're going to come in and be like, Hey, it's, it's okay. You know, thanks for trying, but we don't really use it. We don't use, use that phrase. Uh, we don't really do this, but I could tell that you were really, you were trying to have my back. You were trying to look out for me. Um, and so we can't be, we can't be scared of making a mistake, whether it be, you know, in front of the class trying to, you know, be a little bit more inclusive, you know, uh, whether it be in the hallway dealing with a situation that you heard, you know, we can't be afraid of making mistakes because that's what's keeping a lot of people from, from doing anything. That's why a lot of people are just reposting stuff because they think the person who posted that might be, but well, they, they, they seem like they know what they're talking about. So I'm just going to repost that. I'm going to retweet that. You know, maybe give them a thumbs up or a heart because that doesn't take any any risk on my part. And so I think that's kind of, you know, the people who are in this book club, they're ready, they're ready to have those tough conversations. They want to have those tough conversations, but they don't feel like they're, they're necessarily ready. So that's why they're here. And you know, we feel like we have an opportunity and we don't have the answers, but we can have conversations where maybe those answers can kind of, you know, come together. And if nothing else, you know that if I if I face a situation right here, my neighbor next door was was in the was, you know, we're in the same place. We're in the same place. So I can go next door and knock on the door and be like, Eric, I do. I just I just heard this. And like this is how I handle it. I'm not sure if I handle it right, but this is how I handle it. And Eric can tell me, dude, like that was spot on. I might've did this or, you know, kudos for trying, you know, at least. And, and so the next time I see that a situation, then I feel more and more comfortable to continue going because I have more people at the school who have my back. So I think that's kind of what we're hoping the book club kind of creates, creates an atmosphere where we got a bunch of teachers in our in our school that all are on the same have the same mindset when it comes to racism and the things that we're facing and when a kid says something in the class and a teacher gets onto them and then they think well that's okay i'm just gonna say it when i get in the hallway and then they walk in the hallway and they say it and then the teacher who's standing on hall duty says something to them and they're like well that's okay when i get to to athletics i'm gonna say it and then when the coach in athletics hit it then after a while you realize i can't bring that in this school so i'm gonna have to either change my thinking or i'm gonna have to take that somewhere else but either way it's out of our school and maybe our school becomes a better place for 
for everybody. Yeah, Eric, you were gonna say something. Going back to Susanna's question um, as well. Um, for me, it's why, why do I think this book club, why I think it's important to like what I actually do in the classroom. I think one for me, it's, it's finally gonna force me to confront the age old narrative that like all kids are the same. Philosophically, sure. I agree with that, but like, um, I have to reconcile within myself that as a brown man at the school that I'm currently teaching in, in the in the subject I'm currently teaching, I'm teaching predominantly um, like Anglo population, and it would be a disservice for me to say all kids are the same, knowing that many of the kids I teach have um, inherent advantages that other kids I teach don't have. And it's, it's a moment of honesty with myself to be courageous to actually acknowledge that and take the discomfort that comes with that. And it's not to say that because you do have these advantages that you're a bad person, but can we just be honest about it? And the second reason why I think it's so important that teachers are, are in these conversations will hopefully take them into the classroom. And it's, until, and it's totally selfish. But I have two young children. You know, I have, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. and um, I don't know how I can, I don't know how I can look at them and, and say that I'm not trying to do things in a more direct and honest and uncomfortable way uh, because I don't want them to ever have to face um, the extent of what some people have had to face based solely on their skin color. Yeah, I feel like what you're both describing is like creating pivot points, right? Where we're going in this direction and then something happens and we stop and we think, and then we pivot and we change the direction. And it's not that what happened before doesn't matter. It's that this is an opportunity to do something different and to do it differently. And for me, I feel like there's been, some of that in my own life in the last few years where I have had to stop what I was doing, even though I felt in my heart and in my gut that I was, that everything I was doing was aligned to my personal core values and to the mission that I wanted to live out. And then I came to a realization that actually, no, I, that's actually not true. I'm not living everything. I have kids too, Eric. And I think like, no, my, I want my children to do better than even I've done. And I, I don't know how I can create that for them or craft the opportunity for that reality if I'm not honest about where I, who I am and where I'm from and the things that my family had to overcome to make me who I am and where I'm from. Um, and I, I just, I, I feel like that's exactly what you guys are doing through the book club is maybe, and it's, it's not about, it's not judgmental in any way. Um, it's more like, hey, this is an opportunity for us to do things differently. This is an opportunity for everybody to stop and be still and, and listen to each other, which is another thing I don't think we're great at is listening to each other. Like I feel like, especially, maybe especially educators, because we're always under the sense of urgency to push outcomes, and there's never enough time. We have too many kids, or too many parent interactions, or too many emails, or too many faculty meetings, or too many things to grade. There's never real time, um, which is maybe back to your no meaningful contact, contact comment earlier. It's like, well, who has time 
um, to do that. And so I think, too, there's like this silver lining of this pandemic where it's like the whole world has slowed down just a bit. And yeah, it's super stressful. And we're, we're in new challenges. And at the same time, it's also like, yeah, but I've also had a little bit more time to sit down and have real conversations with people that I might not have been able to do. It's not so siloed right now. Um, we're, we're actually having to, con to come to convene in different ways than we used to convene. Um, and, and we are able to have the, I feel like when you're having a conversation, like I'm assuming you guys are doing your book club virtually. There's something that happens virtually that might not happen in person. That's the way I feel like there's some level of like, if I turn my camera off, I might be able to say this differently. Um, that I, than I would if we were all in the same room, or maybe I'm willing to speak up um, a little bit more than I would if we were in person. And so I think there's some there's some like there's some cool things that are happening because we're we're away from each other and we're, we've slowed just a little bit, um, or we've at least had to shift gears. Everybody's in transition, so everybody's feeling this the struggle. Um, so I just, I don't know, I, that was a long rant, but that's what I, that's what you were saying was making me think of. It's interesting you say about the, the, um, ability to turn off your camera and say, you know, maybe be a little braver, a little more bold about something you have to say. One of the things I noticed in our last book club, and I don't remember if we decided to tell everybody to turn their cameras on or not, um, but all the cameras are on. We did, our numbers were down because it was on a Wednesday, maybe the time. So our numbers were down yeah. um, comparatively. But one of the things I noticed as we were in there is that everybody's camera was on. And I don't know if I can say that the, you know, the first go around with the first book, if that was the case, you know, you know, most people had their cameras on. And I think maybe, Eric, I can't remember, maybe we said something in the beginning about having your camera on so we could see each other's faces. And so when I see Eric in the hallway, I know who he is because I didn't just see the E or his avatar, but I actually can look at him and go, yeah, that's Eric. Like I, you know, we've had a lot of virtual conversations or dialogue together. Um, but but you're exactly right. Like people get, you know, a lot more... Um, willing to say things and that's why when you see on social media these people who who are saying all these things that are very divisive they usually have an avatar like they you know the ones who are saying racist stuff or political stuff or whatever you know stuff that just you know a lot of it is very you know as outlandish they they always have an avatar and they're and a, and a screen name that doesn't lend to who they are so it's it's interesting you say that about the you know being even being virtual with your actual face is a little different than being in a in a you know in a workroom and let's you know face to face where we can reach out and touch each other let's have a conversation about race let's talk about you know you know what happened with George Floyd or maybe something that happened in our school that deals with race I think even sitting behind a camera makes it easier because there's maybe a little part of you that hopes that you never have to have this conversation in, in person and you're kind of relying on that. You're like, I can say whatever I want to say because I'm never going to see, you know, Susanna. And then, oh, snap, there goes Susanna. And it's like, oh, remember when, <laughs> when I told her on there that what she said wasn't right and now we're face-to-face -face and it's awkward? 
Um, but that that's part of the uncomfortableness of it all, though. Um, you know, you got to say, speak what you feel, and then that kind of creates a domino effect, and hopefully, you know, conversation, you know, starts, and, you know, see what happens from there. Who, who named it the Hearts Wide Open Book Club? Marvin, you did? Okay. Um, I want to ask you more about why you named it that, but really quick, I, I have one more question to go with that. Would you say that like Hearts Wide Open Book Club centers um, anti-racist education? Well, well, yeah, I guess I would say that. It is about being, you know, anti-racist and not just, you know, it just in life, like, because I think, you know, some of you kind of touched on it, like some people don't even realize they're being racist because in their, you know, their mind, I didn't mean anything by it. It's like you said, Jennifer, I didn't, I didn't mean anything by it. So it's okay for me to say it. It's kind of like when you, when you start a conversation, I don't mean to be rude, but, well, you're probably about to be rude, you know? So when people, and, and when you were saying that, Jennifer, the thing I thought about is that's the people who are, you know, these, these Confederate flags or these, these um, statues and whatever that represent, you know, slavery or somebody who supported slavery or whatever. And people say, oh, no, no, no. That's not why I support the Confederate flag. It's about history. It's about tradition. Well, your history and your tradition makes me feel some kind of way because your history and tradition involves my ancestors being whipped, hung, lynched. You can't disconnect that. You can't pull that apart. And, and say that, well, I only support this part of this. I don't, I don't support the lynching. You support the person who did the lynching or promoted the lynching. So you can't, you can't pull those apart. Um, you know, you can't tell me, you know, I like you, Marvin. I, I really like you a lot, but I don't like your skin color. You, you can't do that. <laughs> My skin color is a part of who I am. You know, so, um, so, so the, the education piece for anti-race is like, yes, like you have to look at all parts of it, whether we're not just talking about black people, but, you know, any people of color. And sometimes we'll, I run across people who, who think because I'm black and they support me that it's okay to talk down well, if you was talking to one of your Asian friends, would you be talking down about me? Like, so, you know, so it, it's all encompassing. You can't separate, well, I'm not racist toward black people, but maybe Asian people or maybe Hispanic people or Latinos, whatever. So, so yeah, it is centered around uh, anti-racism. Yeah, I would, I would add to Marvin's idea too, that like, um, and this is building off of something that Jennifer said earlier as well, that I, I think it's definitely it's anti-racism in its focus, but I also think it's anti-capitalist. I think it's anti-sexist. I think it's anti-classist because you can't have a conversation about any of these things in a vacuum. They're all interconnected, which is goes, goes back to like dominant culture, right? It's such an entangled, entangled web. And, um, and so the, the way, the reason I think it's anti it's also anti-capitalist and anti-classist um, and anti-sexist uh, is 
Um, what we're really asking, I think, or what I think when you're talking about any of these hot issues with people, what you're really putting at the center is like humaneness and, and seeing people as human. And um, perhaps like, you know, one of the issues, Jennifer, that, that we share in common, I'm just projecting here is that like we were taught by our parents like to attain things rather than to demand human dignity that we deserve. And that's why we feel so hollow, no matter how many degrees I have or how much I achieve, there's that hollowness that lingers no matter what, it's because my basic dignity has been denied for so long. And it's not just me in particular, it's, it's any group, that is for, that's, that's any race, that's women, that's people who are in poverty, that's people who have a different sexual or gender identity um, than what's considered the norm. Um, our basic humanity has been um, suppressed. And I, that's why there's this hollow feeling that persists no matter how much we try to fill it up with yeah. the other things. Right. Yes. And I think it's what fuels an inferiority complex. Um, and I think you're exactly right. Like it's, it's all the isms. It's sexism and ageism. And, you know, I, and it goes back to being rooted in like, I just think like, I, I don't know how to navigate a conversation that isn't about isms anymore. And I don't know if that is just my age or because, you know, I'm older than I used to be and I'm, I'm sick of it. Like I am, I am literally sick of it. And if that makes me the angry Latina woman, then that's what I am. You know, like I'm just, I am sick of it. I cannot anymore. Um, not, you know, not lead every conversation with like, well, who made that? Who, who said, I, you know, and this bubbles up for me in lots of different ways. Like we were having a conversation. I was having a conversation yesterday um, with my sister-in-law and we were talking about this perceived learning gap that's going to exist because everybody is not in school right away. And, and perceived being the operative word. Yeah. And, and I, I was thinking about my own children and my own children I, you know, they are, they're doing just fine. They're doing just fine. Will they know all of the things that they're supposed to know by the end of, or did they know it all by the end of this last school year, what they were supposed to know? I don't know because I didn't, I didn't test them on that, but it goes back to like, well, who decided this is what they're supposed to know by the time they're eight years old? Like who decides that? Where did that even come from? And why am I not involved in that conversation of what my six-year-old should know by the time she's seven? Um, and it's, I don't know, it just bubbles up for me in a lot of different ways. And I do think like, I, I, don't know, I already said it, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of feeling like I'm not enough in the room, whatever room that is. Yeah, and I think, a lot of people are feeling that way. And then on the other side of the spectrum, a lot of people are for the first time having their eyes open to this and realizing what have I done to contribute and feeling as though they don't know where to start. And that's why I think the Hearts Wide Open name of the book club is incredible because I feel like that's immediate, like, okay, here we are. We're about to be vulnerable. This is difficult. This is hard. And this is why we're doing it. So can you talk a little bit more, Marvin, about 
why you chose that name and how it's come to fruition? Um, so I was just trying to, you know, I was, we, you know, we, I was writing the email, you know, I usually write the emails and I send them, you know, to Eric and Valerie and Ronnie and they kind of look at it or they'll tell me, we'll talk about what we want to be in the email. And then, um, you know, put the email together and I wanted to give it a title and I'm just going to put book club. And at first I was going to put minds wide open and then something said, no, put hearts. And I, and I don't know. I, I just thought it was more meaningful because I think we're all coming, the people who will participating this, you know, their, their hearts are in the right place. Everybody, you know, um, wants to, to do right, wants to be better for our students, for our kids, at home, just a better member of society. So somehow it just, it just kind of, I don't know how it, you know, there was no, no, no deep background story to it. It just seemed like the right thing to do, um, the right name. And, um, and I think it's kind of, I think the name has kind of had a little bit of a, of a uh, impact and it all kind of encompasses what we, what we're all here to do. Um. I, that's so beautiful and, you know, makes me, cause I've been a participant and it makes me feel, you know, empowered and engaged. Um, but I know sometimes like even during the book club, it may crop up where you, like Jen has been saying, intent doesn't always match impact. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it's up to each individual of like how, how much you, you have to draw that line for yourself. How much are you willing to call someone in versus call someone out? Mm-hmm. But it's different for adults and for kids, right? I mean, like, I guess I'm wondering as a teacher, um, do you guys think that we have to assume positive intent. Um, And, you know, regardless of your answer to that, uh, how do teachers call in instead of call out in the classroom? And and, and is that even our responsibility? Is that one of our roles? I tell you, in my classroom, I prefer to call in, but I have no problem calling out. And so I, I approach this situation like if a kid, if a kid feels comfortable calling out another student, regardless of whether it, what it's about, if a kid tries to answer a question and gets it wrong and a kid wants to laugh at them or call them stupid or dumb, whatever, then, okay, you were, you were feeling, you know, comfortable enough calling out another student for making an attempt well, I'm going to be comfortable putting you in your place, you know, whatever that, that means, whether that, you know, maybe that means that you might want to take her, take notes because she's got a way higher grade than you. So maybe you ought to start taking a few chances and asking some questions, or maybe you ought to start, you know, doing some of the things that that student is doing because right now they're, they're miles above you academically. So maybe you ought to jump on that boat. You know, so I don't have a problem calling out. Now, there have been times where somebody said something that was insensitive and didn't realize the level of that insensitive, the level of that insensitiveness. So I would pull them to the side. You know, a case was when we were um, 
doing, um, it was advisory was doing a segment on coming out, you know, and one of my black students was, he's just kind of making all these faces like, oh, like, ah, too cool to be talking about coming out and stuff like this, whatever, whatever. And so I just kind of watched him. And so, you know, he's making little, you know, like just all these gestures. So I pulled him outside and I said, you see the way that you're acting right now? I said, that's the way that people act about us as black people. I said, the very way you're acting about these students who, you know, are talking about coming out and what their experience has been is the same thing we deal with. So if we were on the screen right now talking about, you know, some maybe some things, some racist situations we've been in or experiencing racism, then it might be people out there going, making those same faces. I said, how would you feel about that? And he goes, oh, coach, I didn't even, I didn't even think about it like that. You know, so he wasn't, you know, he wasn't coming from a place where he was trying to call somebody out. So I didn't have to call him out in front of the class. I just told him to stop. You know, I did tell him to stop and, you know, fix your face, whatever. But then I pulled him outside and let him know this is what that's about. Like, do you understand that we're in no position as black people to judge anybody? because we've been judged and we're still fighting and he, he understood it and he got it. So, you know, to me, there's a time to call out and there's a time to call in and you just have to, you know, you have to have a a feel for the situation and decide what you think is best in that moment. I think it is part of our, to build off what Marvin said, I think it is a part of our job to, um, to expose, but like I I was, one of the threads in all this conversation that, that bothers me is how much of it is like a bottoms up initiative when really we need to be talking about institutional. It's not, it's not an either or proposition. There does need to be things like the book club we're starting. There does need to be um, other initiatives started at the ground level, but there also needs to be institutional. um, And I'm not just talking at district levels. I'm talking about state and federal levels about like, what is the role of a teacher? And I think for too long in the United States, uh, because we're thinking only about like these outcome-based measures, like with the ultimate outcome being, you know, attending college, college graduation rates, that we, um, it goes back to Marvin's brilliant point, like you can't like Marvin except for the black skin. Like you can't do that. That's not possible. Just like you can't talk about, um, in, my, in my field, a piece of literature without recognizing the historical context in which it was written and being able to like actually talk about that and the problematic nature of it and how we've hopefully evolved since then, if not in our action, then at least in our thinking, hopefully. So um, the call out needs to be, uh, yeah, it is our job to call out. And I think what we need to call out are um, the systems that like make up the uh, educational experience of our students. And then like Marvin already said pretty eloquently, it's like, it seems like a case by case, you have to expose, you have to educate, and then if people still are resistant to things which are obviously around the ideas of decency and openness, then you do have to, you can't let it stand. You know, you just can't let it stand. But I think it, it's systemically that we need to be thinking about this because again, like an inordinate amount of burden is put on the people with the least power to effectuate the most change. Totally. Do what I tell you to do. Just a quick kind of piggybacking on Eric said about it can't be from the bottom up all the time. Like there needs to be, you know, from the top 
all the way, like he said, not, we're not just talking about within our district or within our state. We're talking federally, nationally, worldwide. There need to be some accountability trickling down. And I remember in one of our very first um, book club meetings, somebody mentioned like, you know, like they kind of mentioned that same thing within our district. And my response to that is this district has been waiting a long time for it to come from somewhere and enough of it has not come. I think things are, maybe some things are starting to come now, but why not? Sometimes you have to, you have to start from the bottom up. You prefer when you go to a district, when you go to a job, when you go to a city, a state that is coming from the top and everybody else is, is, is reaping the benefits of that leadership. But then sometimes you have to decide as a person, as a, as a group, community, whatever it may be, that you have to push from the bottom up. And I think that's where um, Black people have, you know, have always had to push from the bottom up. No matter who the leaders were, we've always had people of color, not even just Black people, but people of color have always had to push from the bottom up because there's not enough people who represent us in those high places. And I think that comes back to what Eric talked about, you know, about the isms, you know, and um, one of them is, is the politics of it. Like the way our, our society is designed, it's not designed for people who look like me to ascend to the top and be able to affect change from up there. We, you know, people thought when Barack Obama became president that we arrived like, okay, now, now we can know that that was a, a, a nice symbol, but it's, but look where we're at, you know, yeah. the following year, the following presidency, right. you know, so we're not there. We're not even close. We're not there. We're not there. And I, I do think you're right. Like people of color, what the change has, well, so many times come from the bottom up. And, and to your point about representation, I think, we have to vote. I would just, we have to vote. Like just, women, people of color, women of color, we, we absolutely have to vote. I can't think of a greater way of change coming from the bottom than to get out and vote every time in every election. No doubt. Um, and I think, you know, Oh, I think at first just start with voting. I mean, just, just get them out and vote. Start and then, there. And then maybe we get to a point where it's an educated vote, you know, where maybe they do some research and maybe, you know, um, you know, I think something that happened, and this is just my opinion, but I think, you know, and, and it's part of this is not my opinion, it, it's fact, but when Obama ran for presidency, the number of Black voters was like, it skyrocketed, right? And then we fast forward to the you know, election and the numbers were down again. We're back to the norm. And so unfortunately, I guess it worked out for us, but unfortunately, Black people, people of color, but I think in this case, Black people are, they voted because of skin color. I don't know if they knew much about Obama's record or his political beliefs or, or whatever, but they voted because he was black and he seemed to represent the change that we needed. 
and then we look when Hillary was going against um, uh, Trump, those numbers went back down. And hopefully they go back up because we see where hopefully we realize the importance of our vote. We realize the importance of our vote, regardless of the skin color of who's running for office. We, our vote is so important. So hopefully people realize that and don't dismiss it. Or, you know, too many people saying, well, my one vote ain't going to matter. When you have, you know, five, 600,000, a million, how many people with that same mindset, then we miss an opportunity. I was wondering, Suzanne, like, you know, a thought just occurred to me on your, on your question, a couple of questions back about um, the name of the book club, right? Like, in some ways, I think that it can be like this very, like, comfortable, like, come on in, don't worry, judgment-free zone sort of thing. And, and I think there's definitely a place for that. But I think the more I think about it, I don't, I don't, I don't conceive of it of being so radical until this moment, like, I think it could also be seen as a call to like, hey, you need to open your heart. Like, you need to do it. Like, there's some work you have to do. Like, yeah, my heart may be open to you, but that's not enough. You got to open yourself up. And I think that goes back to some of my frustration that you're hearing about like, why is it always the people at the bottom having to push the change? Like, we're tired. We're tired. Historically, we're tired. Like, um, and, and I agree, like, it because if we did push, there'd be nothing, right? But like, I need people to open their hearts, the people in power, because like Marvin said, the system is not designed for him or me or even you all to get to the top, right? To, to actually do the change from top down. So I need the people who are in these positions to open their hearts, take some hard looks at themselves, take a hard look at the way things are as they actually are, and then push for change, even at the expense of their comfort. Like, I don't think I actually thought about the name quite as radically until just just considering it right now in this conversation. It, it's funny you say that because I, the name kind of just popped in my head. And, I, and the way I thought about it, Eric, was, was the way you said it. Not that my heart is wide open to receive you. <laughs> that was not my thoughts at all. Like whoever comes in here needs to come with their hearts wide open to receive whatever education is happening here, whether it be through tough conversation, whether it be through what's in the book. So, because at first I was thinking, you got to come in with an open mind. So that's why it was almost minds wide open because I thought you got to come in with an open mind. Then I thought even better yet, you need to come in with an open heart, you know? So that's, that's more, it was more of that than my heart is open. Eric's heart is open. Y'all come and join us on this you know, kumbaya journey and let's see if we can find a common ground. No, no, come with your hearts open. You know, all of us, we're going to come together with our hearts open and learn from this book, learn from each other, and then, you know, take that information and hopefully grow and be able to, to use it, you know, to affect change in our classroom and in the community. You got to think, man, like this might be too hot for the podcast, but you got to think like that, that phrasing. Say it. <laughs> Like that phrasing, like heart wide open. That's such like a, that's such a palatable, like phrasing for a certain segment of the white population. Yes. It's like because I could see it to where they're thinking like, this is where our like okay, we're being invited into this space, but they're thinking about our comfort right now. Yeah, you know? yeah. Just, 
Just they may have took that. To, they may have flipped that on me. And, and but if that's why they're here, that that's okay. That, that they found out that that's not what it was. But that could explain, like maybe why they're 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 coming in with some of the things, like, well, that's not my intention, or that's not my impact. It's like, sorry, like, don't matter. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody, our numbers were down this last go around the last week, and I don't know. It could be a marauder thing. I mean, we're all overwhelmed with opening of school and all these emails we're getting about this and that, you know, um, got kids, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons, but somebody mentioned one, you know, cause we kind of talked about it in our little group chat, the four of us. And, you know, it was like, why are the numbers, why were the numbers so low? And I forget who said it, but they said, maybe it's the book because this book is, is a little more divisive than the other book. The other book was, you know, it was more of a history lesson on you know from somebody's perspective so it wasn't quite as it made you think about oh that person i, I never knew that about abraham lincoln or thomas jefferson or w Du Bois or whatever so it just kind of made you think like that but that wasn't anything that was probably just so over the top that you were like wow like this book is challenging some of that for yeah. good or bad but this book so maybe <laughs> maybe you're on to some eric they think the <laughs> It's like to come in and wife agility. They went with that book. Like I thought we were just kind of, you know, hanging out and, you know, you know, having a good time, you know, seven, you know, seven, eight o'clock. And then we was going to go about our way. But wife agility, that's challenging who I think I, I am or who I thought I was because this lady who's white <laughs> just said this, or she, she challenged me on this and I don't, I don't know if I want to go in there for that book club. Maybe, maybe I'm a I'm gonna wait till the next book. Maybe we get something a little less abrasive. So I I do have a question about that, and I didn't vote on the next book choice. So I need to exercise. I need to exercise my oh, vote. You, you and about seventy other people, but well, I digress. I know. I don't know. Um. Yeah. My bad. Uh. But um. I was curious. I actually, I texted because I didn't, I don't have the book yet. So I didn't go to the first book club meeting. Um, I'm coming. I promise I'm coming on Thursday. (laughs) You can only do it now. Um, But I texted uh, someone that that's been in the book club and I was like, how'd it go? Because I don't have the book yet. And I'm curious um, about this text just because yeah, it is about race and it's written by a white author and I'm just curious like what how um I I wasn't there so how are y'all you know addressing that fact um do you think it's fraught with any sort of contentiousness at all and you know Eric I'm gonna make you talk a little bit about being uh, a literacy teacher, a language arts teacher here and tell us like, what do you think about when it comes to books in general? Uh, Like which ones are the ones that are best to engage us on these conversations? And should we limit them or should we be open to all of them? Tell me what you think about that. I think in reading like, um, like reading widely and broadly is like generally a good rule um, to follow. I think, um, you know, we, we, our first, uh, our first book was written by a PhD who is, you know, 
black, and now we have someone who is white. So I think we're varying up perspectives. Um, I think the book is a great tool and metaphor to show, you know, allyship in a way, like being able to name the thing as a person who benefits from the thing. But like with any book, um, I don't think that any one voice should dominate. You know, uh, there, there are some parts of her book, uh, uh, Light Fragility, Dr. D'Angelo's book, that um, that are largely based on conjecture or like wide sweeping assumptions that may not hold true in the black community. And so we need to examine those things fairly closely and ask ourselves like, well, what is, what is the validity of these statements? And even if those particular statements may be invalid, like is the whole of her argument still solid, you know? Um, and if nothing else, it's, it's an imperfect book because it's written by a person who's imperfect, like we all are. So um, if nothing else, though, it's a great springboard to say like this isn't just, you know, Latinx writers or black writers or women writers writing about these things. Like how refreshing that's actually a white person saying it and naming it and saying it so nakedly. Interesting. Um, I'm curious, both of y'all, if you could recommend books for the, I have three areas. Um, one, just like, you know, you reading in your personal life Two books for your like teacher shelf, you know, where you keep all of the um, like professional development type books, good or bad. I don't know if you read them or not. Um, and then three, your classroom shelf, like the, the shelf where you, that you have for all of your students. Do you have recommendations? So through, uh, like in my classroom shelf, this one doesn't like speak specifically to race, but it does speak to like, you know, opening up different perspectives, graphic novel, um, called honor girl. And what it deals with is a young woman who is, uh, coming to empowerment in her sexuality and also coming to empowerment in um, resisting the deep religiosity of her family. When this religiosity like impedes on her like basic human dignity. So that's a book on my shelf that I think really helps kids see difference in a lot of way. Um, trying to think uh, we're, we're going to use the, we're going to use the graphic novel this year in our teaching the ninth grade pre AP uh, team with Talia Howard, and Mary Kate Motley. Um, we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, read the book March. And we decided this way before the passing of, of uh, Congressman Lewis. So that's something I'm really interested in reading and having kids engage with. And it's, it's, it's ever more timely with his recent passing than with everything that's happened this summer. I think, and um, I think another, uh, I think those are the top two right now that I think that I would recommend off the top. One that I would, that I would urge uh, teachers to think more about, especially literacy teachers. It, this is nothing new. We're just putting it out there again. I would think about, think of books and the tropes of like To Kill a Mockingbird, um, books like that. Like I would be, I would use those books to have a discussion about some of the problematic things brought up such as how the death of Tom Robinson is really kind of brushed over in to privilege, like how noble Atticus Finch is in the whole thing, which is great that he's, he's noble and stuff, but again, someone just got killed, you know, 
like in society and we're focusing on the effects of that killing on Atticus Finch and how that destroyed him, you know? So um, those are some, I guess I would like maybe look at the classics and either be wary of them or be willing to talk about like what's problematic with them. Sorry, my power went out for some reason over at the house. So I had to regroup and jump on my phone. No problem. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're clearly, we know at least in San Antonio for the first three weeks of school, that's going to be something we're facing. Um, So in that vein, I'm curious, um, how do you want to see your praxis changing for this fall, especially given that um, we know at least some part of it is going to be virtual? I don't, I don't know. I don't think for me personally, um, you know, we, we, you know, I've always talked about things in class, you know, whether just being like some casual conversation because we have some, some extra time or, or whatever, or a kid may ask me, Coach Walk, you listen to this, this particular artist or whatever, whatever. And I joke with him and be like, why do you think I got to listen to Lil Uzi? Like, why do you think I'm not listening to, to this person, that person? And then sometimes that kind of leads to maybe some conversations about, you know, maybe about race or whatever. Um, and then doing advisory, doing my advisory, we always had really tough conversations, you know, or, you know, I led some conversations about maybe my upbringing, maybe things I've dealt with from a, from whatever perspective, whether it be racism, whether it be, you know, just economically, you know, things that I've dealt with. Um, So we've always had conversations where all eyes were on me doing advisory because they were just like, they were enthralled in, in what I was sharing with them. So for me, I don't know, you know, how much it changes. I know something that I, you know, had wanted to do and it kind of got paused, but the same book club that we're doing for teachers do a similar book club for students. And I will tell you that what paused it was the thing that happened with the three young ladies who were kind of um, drugged through the mud, in my opinion, for for making a mistake. Um, And I just thought at the time, the community was kind of in a very hot spot you know, everybody was kind of, I didn't think that was the time to approach parents of students and say, hey, let's have a conversation about race. Um, with everything that was going on at that time, it's something that I fully intend to do still. Um, and I've been thinking about it a little bit more and more lately. Um, you know, so that's kind of, you know, my thought. But as far as my classroom, I, I, I think that, you know, not a whole lot will change, you know, just some of the same conversations I've always had and the, the environment I've always tried to create. I think in an English classroom, like it's probably a little bit easier to directly and indirectly address some of these things. So um, I know one of the big preoccupations on our, um, on our team this year is to talk about like the notion of, and again, this is the accusation that this is trying to make it palatable to a, to a white lens is I think is perfectly um, valid in this case. Um, And I'm open to that criticism, but when I think about race or class or gender, like what comes to mind is the idea of power, you know, that's ultimately what we're talking about is power um, dynamics. And so I think one of the interesting questions that I want us to explore in everything we read is 
who has the power in this particular story or article or poem or whatever, who has the power, what do they do with that power, and then why do they have that power? What, what, what opens them? And who, uh, who necessarily doesn't have the power by that? And, and I think that's one way that we can explore some of these more difficult conversations without, because to a 14 or 15 year old brain, like you just start going race, sexism, but you're going to set like 50% of the class on edge. But if you can kind of neutralize the language, but still get to the heart of it, you know, if you're talking about power. So well, how's power represented? Oh, because um, this guy, uh, this guy assaulted this girl. Like, oh, so that seems like that's a gender power dynamic, doesn't it? And then they're like, oh, yeah. And so I think that's that's how we will um, try to do that. And, um, and then I think through the writing, I think, um, again, constantly trying to have them, like, through imaginative acts, like, try to put themselves in 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 the mind of the characters of the least power in their journaling and try to write from that perspective, you know, which may totally invert a story, but still making them think outside of the, even the privileged positions that narratives hold. Well, thank you both for your time tonight. We just, I can't tell you how appreciative the three of us are um, to, to even just know you. And I'm glad that you, Susanna and Kristen brought them into my little circle. Um, I'm super excited. And so I wanted to tell you guys, that this is your personal invitation and an invitation to anybody who's listening to join our teacher network. It's called San Antonio Leaders and Teachers. Um, our web address is saltcollective.io, and we're an educator network that exists in San Antonio to break down those barriers. Um, specifically, we're like really agnostic about where you work. If you call yourself a, an educator, you're in. Um, and we started the network because we really felt like we were working in silos and the people that we know um, are the people that we work with or that we used to work with. And we wanted to expand that across the city. We wanted school districts to talk to school districts and charters and private schools. And we wanted elementary school teachers to know high school teachers. And we wanted administrators to hang out with teachers um, we did not want to continue to exist in, I think you called it echo chambers, Eric, um, we, which we tend to grow on our own, right? Like we tend to hang out with people who look and sound like us. And we really wanted to combat that. And I think that uh, I just wanted you to know that we exist and for you to think about coming out to some of our sessions. And then I also wanted to let everybody else know that there is some top level work that's happening in San Antonio. City Education Partners is running a series of race equity um, workshops, and they are open to the public. They're open to, and they do cost something, but they offer scholarships if that's not something that people can burden themselves. Um, and so I wanted to put that on everybody's radar, too. They're offering a race equity phase one session on September 10th and September 11th. It's going to be either in person or on Zoom, depending on where we're at. Um, and you can find more information on that at the City Education Partners website. So I wanted to, to put those two things on everyone's radar, San Antonio leaders and teachers and the race equity workshops that are happening across the city. Um, thank you both for your time. Kristen and Susanna, did you want to say anything before we close out? 
Sure. I wanted to say, first of all, I um, have known you, Eric, and then Marvin, I've gotten to know you this summer, and I'm just really excited that I get to work in the same district as y'all, but mostly I'm so grateful that y'all were willing to come on and share your stories because, yeah, that's that's what it's all about is elevating teacher voice um, and, yeah, getting to, to flip this narrative. Y'all are brilliant, and the work that you do with kids is so impactful, um, so I'm glad I get to learn from y'all as well, so thank you. Yeah, it's been incredible. Both of you are clearly so reflective and critical in your approach to the work and in um, how you see yourself ever evolving and transforming um, in the educational space. And that is exactly what we need in our teachers with people that are leaning on their experience, leaning on their questioning, leaning on their uncomfortable spots and um, just really growing from there. So thank you for being a role model to your students, obviously, but also a role model to other teachers who might be struggling and, you know, really trudging through this. So thank you. Thank you for having us on. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. All right, guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.